Welcome to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series, brought to you today by me, Daniel Moore, and I have the pleasure of having uh, Dr. Matthew Broom, who's a Senior Clinical Research Fellow at the Department of Psychiatry here at Oxford, and also a consultant psychiatrist. Good afternoon, Matthew. Good afternoon, Daniel. Thanks for inviting me. You have a really interesting uh, research uh, portfolio looking at, uh, well, really how to predict potential onset of psychosis in people who are developing it perhaps early in their life. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? So this was work that I became involved with back at the Institute of Psychiatry in around um, 2001. Um, we began developing first episode intervention services around the same time, the LEO service, Lambeth Early Onset Service. And I guess even back then we were, we were aware, even with um, very well-designed intervention services, people were still presenting um, quite late with psychosis, with a long duration of untreated psychosis. The Mental Health Act was being used uh, fairly often and patients were having lost jobs, relationships, fallen out of college or school. So we got very interested quite early on in um, what was called the high-risk paradigm. So the work of colleagues in Melbourne such as Pat McGorry and Alison Young. Um, and I guess to put it into a bit of context, there were sort of two ways to think about the high risk for psychosis at that time. There was a genetic high-risk research programme that was led by Eve Johnson and colleagues in, in Edinburgh, which followed up a, a cohort of um, people with first-degree relatives with schizophrenia. And there was the work for Melbourne, which looked at another high-risk group identified by symptoms rather than by genetic risk. OK, so you've got a group of people who somehow a high risk of, of, uh, of developing psychosis. How do you tell who's, who's in that high risk group? Do you, do you actually do genetic tests on them and then look at their symptoms? Or, so what, what do the symptoms look like? And okay, so the way we did it, um, so I guess there's a genetic high risk group which I put to one side and the clinical high risk group is based upon um, symptoms, so psychopathology. Um, and there are a few different ways of doing that. As I mentioned, we were very much influenced by the Melbourne group, so we used a measure developed by Alison Young called the CALMS, which is the Comprehensive Assessment for At-Risk Mental State. And Alison developed that measure, from what I recall, um, initially by retrospective um, accounts of those with, who had developed psychosis. So asking them to give, them, give her accounts of the earliest experiences they had. Um, and in addition, she began reviewing um, the prior literature on the prodromal phase of psychosis. Interestingly, their, their work in this area was triggered by concerns about the DSM-3 category of prodromal psychosis and its non-specific qualities. So Pat and Alison tried to sort of empirically examine the concept again afresh, really. Okay. And that's which led to the development of the CALMS. There were other measures are very similar. So colleagues in, in Yale had a, a measure called the SIPS and SOLT, which also looks at psychotic symptoms in the early stage. And colleagues in um, Germany in Cologne developed measures looking at um, subtle symptoms of psychosis, which include more cognitive and negative features. But most of UK, uh, Australian and uh, North American psychiatry tends to focus on, on using the CARMs or the SIPs and SOPs and tends to focus on what we would call uh, attenuating positive symptoms. So mild um, symptoms uh, that look a bit like hallucinations and delusions. Those are the kind of things we focus on, sorry. Yeah, thanks. I, what I'm interested in from reading your research, Matthew, is that you might have a whole lot of people who have got these sorts of attenuated positive symptoms, so yeah. a little bit like a hallucination, a little bit yeah. like a delusion, not yeah. quite either of those yet. 
kind of experiencing some unusual um, sort of features in their in their life. Perhaps life's not going too well. But it seems to me that it's very difficult to predict from that quite large group sometimes who is going to go on to develop perhaps schizophrenia. Yeah. And a lot of your work is about how to predict from that large group who is going to mm. develop perhaps a, a long term severe psychotic illness. So what, what what have you found out? I guess there's a few things to say about that. I think you've learned quite a lot. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the original papers from um, Jung and McGorry suggested that people who met these criteria, about um, 40% of people who develop psychosis within 6 to 12 months. That's probably turned out to be not quite so high as that as years have gone by. And, the, and what we call the transition um, data has, has sort of become, become less strong. But saying that, the recent meta-analysis by Fuzar Poly in, I think, 2012, still was saying that 22 to 35% of people will transition within two years. So just the measure as is, is still not so bad at predicting first episode of psychosis within, within a couple of years. About one in three people will develop psychotic illness. Um, but yes, you're quite right. I mean, the reasons we, we some of the, my, my colleagues at the Institute of Psychiatry and myself are very interested in improving those predictive powers. And I guess also what some people refer to as a problem of false positives. So misidentifying those as being at risk when, when, they're, when they're not. Um, I guess the other big area of psychiatry that this research meshes with is the continuum model of psychosis. What's that? So this is the idea that people in the normal population who aren't impaired, aren't help-seeking, also may have experiences such as um, ideas of reference, the occasional auditory um, experience, such as voice hearing, and they aren't cases or, or destined to become cases. So you're quite right with your concern that those you might see in, a, in an at-risk clinic could be a member of the normal population with no enhanced risk at all. So we're very much aware of trying to improve the predictive powers of, of, of these questionnaires and measures um, given the, this wider epidemiological research in, in, in those people who are, are non-help-seeking, non-distressed, and have psychotic-type experiences. So you've looked at some really quite subtle psychopathological changes in these individuals to yeah. see if they can help predict over and above these tests who yeah. might transition. And what, what have you found out about that? Well, I guess a variety of things. I mean, we were my kind of main role was... Um, I led on uh, some service evaluation, um, delusion formation, some of the fMRI work, and other colleagues, um, such as Oliver Howe, who's spoken about recently, led on, for example, PET. So we're very interested in um, so neuropsychological measures uh, and uh, fMRI correlates, um, predicting psychosis. I guess it's still at the stage where we probably don't know how these variables um, interact to help you have a um, a clinical tool that could be used to predict psychosis, and that's a fair thing to say. But I guess there's some things we do know. So I guess, um, so Ollie demonstrated quite convincingly that striatal dopamine, for example, is already elevated in those who might be at risk of psychosis and become more elevated as people enter the first episode. Spatial working memory, I'm sorry, verbal working memory seems to be quite a key feature replicated in several research groups um, London, Germany, that seem to predict the onset of psychosis. How do you test for verbal working memory in, in, in that study? So what I did was a, a, a simple, um, what's called an NBAC task, so an, an online fMRI task, looking at people's ability to, to relate um, a stimuli to one that occurred, a certain number of stimuli before. So what you're saying is people are unable to, or less good at, 
remembering what's been said to them before having been interrupted with other other things that have been said to them and and that that sort of perhaps that disability or that lack of ability or reduced ability is is potentially predictive of of transition i think so so i think certainly that kind of feature in combination with the clinical signs would, would make people slightly higher elevated risk other things that are important um, anxiety and depression so this group although they, they don't have a first episode of psychosis definitionally they're, they're at risk for one um, they will have very likely to have a, a comorbid um, DSM diagnosis of anxiety or mood disorder. And again, there's some evidence to suggest, I mean, for all sorts of reasons, for cognitive models of psychosis as well as more biological models, that these things can increase risk. Um, and treating them also can, can, can be helpful. Uh, other things, people have done a lot of work about white matter changes, uh, connectivity changes, um, structural MRI changes, um, as well as more lifestyle things such as sleep disturbance substance misuse. So there's a kind of wide a variety of risk factors that are potentially intervenable in, in uh, this kind of group of, who are high risk. And I guess the challenge clinically is to try and use the least um, dangerous interventions. Yes, that was my next question because, um, okay, so you've got this group of people who are at an increased risk of, of transitioning into psychosis. Mm. How do you feel ethically about potentially giving somebody a, a, perhaps a low dose of an antipsychotic yeah. in that situation to potentially reduce the risk? Because you might be giving somebody an antipsychotic for no reason at a, a yeah. time in their life why they might be affected by that. So yeah. well, well, how do you cope with that? That's a really important question, I think, when we debated quite a lot in the early days. Um, so I think empirically, it, it can't be supported at present as a, as a treatment for at risk and to, to abort the onset of psychosis. Um, in practice, some of these patients will have very low dose neuroleptics. I think by far the minority. I think, from what I recall, when I worked in our, in our service in South London, it may have been you know fewer than ten percent. And the reasons why you might consider it would be because the the patient may have very distressing psychotic experiences, maybe a very high risk of, of self harm or, or violence, for example. So yes, I would. Generally, the rule would be to avoid antipsychotic medicine in, in, in this group. Um, you could try um, other alternative pharmacological treatments. So I think it's not... Um, you, you might want to consider the use of a treatment for depression or anxiety disorder, such as an SSRI or a hypnotic, for example, for sleep problems. But I guess the mainstay would be a psychosocial intervention. So um, psychological treatment and um, you know, family work and, and uh, case management would be very, very powerful. Because uh, what you don't want, as you say, is to give a treatment inappropriate to somebody who has no, no risk whatsoever. Ethically, it is really interesting. It's something that Dr Lennox and I are hoping to develop with um, Elena Singh in the department is a sort of embedded ethical piece of work with the EI service in the, in the trust. Because um, you get this kind of slightly uh, difficult interaction clinically where what you try and do therapeutically is to normalise the abnormal experience. So quite often when you see a patient who you think might be high risk, what you're trying to do is to alleviate the anxiety because of the symptoms and to normalise them. So quite often you're sort of saying a lot of people do hear voices now and again, people may feel, feel the occasion a bit of paranoia and look at the emotional charge around it and trying to lessen that. But at the same time as giving that normalising message, you're also giving the message, but can I still see you every month for monitoring? So that kind of difficult conversation is, is hard. So um, 
there's a bit of controversy, as you may be aware, about DSM-5 and incorporating the attenuated psychosis syndrome within that. So Elena Singh's quite interested in, in, in young people's experience of e-psychosis services and how the at-risk category is used. So we're hoping to embed some quite detailed qualitative research into the clinical services in Oxford and Buckinghamshire because of that very reason, how young people might feel about these diagnoses and terms and, uh, and how they judge probability in those kind of discussions really in clinical practice. So when we think about uh, early intervention today in, in, in the UK... Do you think we've made strides forward in in, in knowing who, who to who to treat and, and how to treat them? Do you think progress has been made? I, th- I think so. Progress is is bumpy and sometimes goes backwards to get forward. If that makes sense. I guess what I, what I'm aware of is how naive we were. If I look back to when we set up programmal services. 14 years ago, we had this very simplistic view that having this at-risk mental state mapped onto psychosis, and we didn't really think much more than that. So I guess one of the things that has come out of this research is the at-risk mental state described by Jung and colleagues might be more a marker of general risk for psychiatric illness across the board. So I think where people are getting interested in is, is, is a more general transdiagnostic view of adolescent, young, young adult health and do these markers predict problems down the line and those problems may end up being psychotic illness, they may end up being personality difficulties, mood disorder, etc. So I guess you've got a bit more nuanced about that um, and that's really in parallel with people being less siloed about diagnostic um, types uh, and clarity. Um, I think EI generally has been has been great. I think it's it's been a, a sort of trailblazer for how community care can be delivered in an optimistic uh, way, really, um, focusing on on outcomes that are important to young people, such as you know jobs, education, relationships. I think EI has been very good at that kind of ideological approach to psychiatry, and I'm one of the. I'm not sort of zealot about EI. I'm very um, compelled by the argument that EI is just doing psychiatry well. And it's nothing special about you could do it with any kind of patient group, with any any diagnostic group. It remains a very cost-effective way of delivering care. I guess what we have seen the last several years has been a kind of pulling back into the service provision of EI because of um, economic cuts. Um, but I, I, I certainly I feel in this trust, maybe more nationally, that's beginning to be reversed slightly and I'm getting more optimistic again, which is good. Matthew, it's been great to speak to you today. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. I enjoyed it, Daniel. Thank you.